I'm going to begin this morning by just asking you a question. So put your thinking caps on and contemplate this question with me. If you were to stand before God tonight and He were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? How would you answer that question? There is no more profound question than you can consider than that. Why should I let you into heaven? Over the years, I've asked that question of many people and I've had all kinds of responses. Asked it of a young man one time and his response to me was, I wouldn't even ask. I just kicked the door in. Someone else uh, said to me, well, I'm basically a good person. I've never killed anybody. God will uh, let me in. Someone else said, uh, wow, that's a good question. I, I, I don't know. I don't know what I would say. Another said the response would be, I, I don't deserve to come in. I just don't deserve it. The atheist um, Bertrand Russell, when asked a similar question, said he would respond, Sir, you did not make yourself plain. The, the 18th century French philosopher Rousseau, a man who fathered a number of children out of wedlock and sent every one of them to an orphanage, he said, I will stand before God and defend my conduct. About 3,000 years ago, a prophet of God in a vision, was brought into the throne room of grace. And there before the king of the universe, he had an audience, as it will, as you, as you will. And Isaiah records it for us in Isaiah chapter 6. It says, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of Him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So records the prophet Isaiah. The Apostle John, 
near the end of his life. And a vision was transported as well into the presence of the resurrected and glorified Jesus Christ. John writes for us in the book of Revelation, chapter 1 and verse 17, And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as a dead man. What would your response be in the presence of Almighty God? Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. If you're using a pew Bible this morning, it's page 1127, Romans chapter 3. You know, folks, uh, according to the Scriptures, the Bible, that unless we have some outside help, none of us will have a thing to say at all. None of us. We will stand there silent, head hanging in shame as God reads the verdict. Romans 3, beginning in verse 10, is perhaps as good a place as any to get an idea of what the verdict might be. For it's written there, as it is written, there is none righteous, no or not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths and the path of peace they have not gone, gone, uh, known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Hanging your head in silence. Speechless. Speechless. What is the cause of our silence. Why will we be speechless unless someone intercedes from the outside? Why on our own would we be speechless in the presence of God? The answer is the law. The law will render us speechless. The law and our inability to keep it. Interestingly enough, that's the very same thing that many people want to point to as their hope. Before God, right? Like that gentleman had told me that uh, I'm basically a good person. I keep the law. That's my basis of acceptance before God. And the Scripture says that it is the law that will be what condemns you. We're looking at verses 19 and 20 together this morning where Paul takes up this topic of the law. And he does it in somewhat abbreviated form here. He'll be coming back to it later and we'll come back as well. But notice what Paul says, verses 19 and 20, after he has finished with this 14-point indictment of humanity. He says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. 
that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law is not our friend. It is our accuser. This morning, as we look at the text together, I want to see with you two ways that the law will render us speechless. Two ways that the law renders us speechless before our Creator so that we will see the need for someone to stand in our place. Someone from outside the system. That is Jesus Christ. The first way, and I've got it there for you in your handout, the first way that the law renders us speechless is by destroying our defenses. The law destroys our defenses. We're very good about this, right? We want to erect a, a series of defenses. We're like a retreating army trying to blow the bridges as fast as we can. Keep God at bay. But the law just overwhelms, the Scripture says here in these verses, the defenses that we might erect. First, beginning in verse 19, the first way that the law destroys our defenses is by the fact that the, the Word of God is for you. Let me just kind of develop that a little bit. We have a defense. Let me just say this up front. We have a defense mechanism whereby we tend to think that the law is for everybody else but us. Paul's going to demolish that for us here in the first part of verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Just stop there. You've got to think about that a moment. Now, Contextually, there's a few things we need to point out here to get the flow of what's going on. The quotations that precede this, and this is all linked together, right? This is Paul's argument that he's building. In verses 10 through 18 are all drawn from the Old Testament. But they are not drawn from the books of Moses in the Old Testament, which typically we would think of when we say the law, we would think of what's called the Pentateuch or the first five books of the Old Testament. Instead, these quotations are all drawn from the Psalms and the prophets. So what? Well, here's so what. In context here, then, when Paul says, now we know that whatever the law says, he's referring back to the quotations he's just given them. And thus he is broadening his statement here with regard to the law to sweep up all of the Old Testament together. So what he is really saying is, is that the, the law, and it's referred to twice in this verse, is not just the narrow Mosaic law embodied in the Ten Commandments given at Sinai, but the whole of the Old Testament revelation of God. It is all here called the law. So we could say that now we know that whatever the Scriptures says, it speaks to those who are under the Scriptures. That's the idea that he's communicating. Beyond that, uh, the expression under the law here again in uh, verse 19, the first part of it, is literally in the law, in the law, meaning in the sphere of or connected to the law. So if we can put these ideas together, then idiomatically we could translate this verse. Now we know that whatever the scriptures say to those who are connected to the scriptures, 
Whatever the Bible says, it's saying to those of us who are part of the people of God and have the Bible. That's Paul's point. It's speaking to us. The Bible is speaking to us. That means that its promises, its threats, its blessings, its judgments apply first and foremost to us, the people of God. Notice Paul says, verse 19, includes himself in this. We know that whatever the scripture says, it speaks to those who are in the scriptures. He's pulling himself into this and including, I believe, contextually speaking here of the the believers at Rome, the Christians, and he's pulling them all together. Why? It's because of that human tendency to think that it. God's talking to somebody else. God must be talking to somebody else. When he reads or gives us this indictment here in verses 10 through 18, that's got to be for somebody else. That's not me. Got to be somebody else. I mean, of course the wicked are like that. Of course the wicked do those kind of things. But we're the people of God. We're different. So Paul reminds them here of what is their common knowledge, and that is that the Scriptures speak first and foremost to the people of the book. People of the book. What the Bible says is not incidental to us. It is for us. It's speaking to us. This is a trait that we have. All of us. To think that the Bible's talking to somebody else. Talking to somebody else. I can't tell you how many times people have come to me through the years and they'll say something like this, Boy, I sure wish so-and-so had been here to hear that. Some of you haven't said it, you've just thought it. Boy, if they'd have been here, that that would have got them. I had someone come to me from this this fellowship here six months or so ago. And they said, I can't wait until you get to Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, and then you really give it to them. It's for you. It's for you. It's for me. The Scriptures are speaking to us. And see, we will we'll erect a defense, a barrier, a, a, a berm. A, you know, we'll burn a bridge. We'll do whatever we can to evade the implications for us. Let me just make it really pointed for you this morning, okay? If you walk out of a sermon or you put down your Bible after reading it, and your first thought is that it applies to somebody else, then you have missed the entire point of the passage of Scripture or the sermon or the Bible lesson that you've just heard. If, some, if you're thinking about somebody else, should have heard that, should have read that, you've missed it. And in fact, what you need to do is go back, open your eyes, open your ears, 
and try it all over again. Until you recognize that it's for you. These things are written for you. I am preaching this morning to you. I'm not preaching to your wife or your husband or your children or your neighbors or your friends. I'm preaching to you. This sermon is for you and it's for me. God is speaking to us this morning through His Word. And He's speaking directly to you. The second way that the law here in this context destroys our defenses is in the beginning part of verse 20. And that is that law-keeping does not justify. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, Paul says. Now, it's important that we take a moment here and define the term justify. Just, justify, justification, these related concepts are going to uh, increasingly crop up in the Scriptures that will be before us in the next weeks and months as we move out. This is the last message in the condemnation section of Romans, right? Praise God. We're moving now into the section of relief. And it's all about justification. That's what we're going to have to deal with over and over again. So it's important that we begin with some kind of definition. Now, this is, uh, this is not an exhaustive definition, but it's a working definition that we can live with for a while at least. To justify does not mean simply to pardon, okay? It's not the same as just to pardon. Nor does it mean to change inwardly. To justify, to be justified, does not mean that we are inwardly changed, okay? It doesn't mean to pardon and restore to favor either. In its most simple terms, To justify means to acquit. It is a legal term and it means to acquit. To find no ground for condemnation. When you are justified, you are acquitted. That means there is no longer a ground for condemnation against you. You are legally released. For example, when a man is accused of a crime and then he is acquitted or declared just in the eyes of the law, he is released. His moral character has not changed. He has been acquitted. What has happened is that there are a, de- a declaration has been made that the punishment cannot be justly inflicted upon him. He is acquitted. We could think of an example major media trial that occurred here a decade or so ago, right, with a football player, he was acquitted. He was acquitted. That is not a statement upon his innocence or not. He was acquitted. Now, 
When it comes to our standing before God, think with me on this, to be justified means that we have been declared or pronounced just. And therefore, we are no longer liable to punishment for our sin because justice in our case has already been satisfied. There's no longer any legal grounds under which to convict us. Justice has been done in our case. Just keep going with me on this, okay? The reason that law-keeping will not justify is because our self-efforts fall short. Okay, That's the, the basic reason why Paul says in beginning in verse 20, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be acquitted in his sight. Why? Because it falls short. It falls short. No one can or does live in perfect obedience to the law. Therefore, the law leaves us only guilty and only under condemnation. Even the Mosaic law given to the people of God could not justify them before God. Paul says that actually a little later in this same epistle in chapter 8, verse 3. He says, for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did Sending his own son. The problem lies not with the law. It lies with those under the law. That is, they are weak in the flesh. They are unable to fulfill the law in its entirety. And therefore, it, they fall short. They can't point to their law-keeping to acquit them. One writer said it this way. He said, you might as well try to cross the river on a millstone as to get into heaven by works of the law. Just grab a hold of the biggest stone you can find, strap it on your back, and see if you can float across. Okay? You're not going to make it. Now, one other exegetical point, if we could say that here at the beginning of verse 20, that I want to note for you is that contrary to most English translations, the Greek text here before law does not have the definite article, the law. I think... A better translation, and it's available for you, at least in the NASB in the marginal note, is to speak of all law here. So because by the works of law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. What that does is it broadens the concept for us here of the law from that which is merely contained here in the Scriptures to include law, all law as a reality of human life. I think the reason that Paul does that, by the way, is because he is, swoop, he is scooping up the whole world and all the world is, does not have access to the Scriptures. It kind of answers a question that people raise in their mind. What about those people in such and such a place in the world who don't have the Bible? What about them? You'll remember back in Romans 2 and verses 14 and 15, Paul says there that they do have a law written in their hearts, instinctively within them. So what Paul is saying here is that law-keeping of any sort cannot and will not acquit us before our Creator. Not the, the Mosaic law for the nation of Israel contained in the Ten Commandments. Not the broader context of the law speaking of the Scriptures themselves and our ability to do what is commanded of us there. Nor any other set of human rules and regulations. It will not make you right doesn't matter if it's written on tablets of stone or written in the human heart. It cannot acquit. 
It will not eliminate the ground of our condemnation. So what does the law do? What does the law do? It renders us speechless. It renders us speechless. This is the second point there in your handout. By creating conviction. What does the law do? It will not acquit you. It will take away your defenses. It will silence your mouth. It will humble your heart. How? Verse 20, second half of the verse. Because we become conscious of sin through the law. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Right? Second part of the verse. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The primary effect of law, and I'll just keep saying it that way, that is all law upon people is to reveal their sin and themselves as sinners. Law doesn't define sin just in some intellectual sense. What it does is it gives us people an understanding of sin singular, right? Notice that at the end of the verse. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin singular as a power that holds you in bondage. That's what the law does for you. Law presents to you a set of demands. And your constant failure to meet those demands brings you to the point of recognizing that you are a lawbreaker, a sinner. That's who you really are. And thus you are justly condemned because of your failures. That's what the law will do. Let me try to illustrate this for you a little bit, okay? There are speed limit signs posted all over the roads. I picked one I thought I could catch just about everybody on, okay? Speed limit signs are posted everywhere, aren't they? What speed limit signs do is demonstrate that you are under the power of sin because you are a lawbreaker. You do not obey them. You do not obey them. You have all kinds of reasons that you make up in your own mind as to why the law applies to everybody else but you. I'm in a hurry. So what? The fact that you're in a hurry means the law doesn't apply to you? What do speed limit signs do? Show you to be a speeder. Lawbreaker. Let me give you another one, a little more personal. Back in... uh, 1977, the spring of 1977, I was wrestling, as it were, with God. I was a self-professed atheist, which is always unique and interesting for someone who says they're an atheist is yet constantly wrestling with a God that he says doesn't exist, yet I was arguing with the non-existent God. But I was relying upon my own righteousness that I was a good person. I'm a good person. I obey the law. And then one day, I stole a box of athletic tape from the trainer's storage room in the university where I was.
because of because of various reasons, I had legitimate access to tape. The trainer would have given me all the tape I wanted. All I needed to do was ask. But instead of asking, I decided to steal it. And over that theft, that violation of the law, God broke my proud heart and showed me that who I really am is a thief. Everything else aside, I'm a thief. And I am so desperate a thief that I would steal something I didn't even need or could have had if I would only ask. Instead, I would steal it. The law made me conscious of sin. Crushed me. Created conviction within me. God saved my wretched soul just two days later because of the theft of some athletic tape. The law creates conviction by making us conscious of sin. Secondly, if you're following along there, the law, it's through the law that we become convinced of our guilt. Kind of related concepts here. We become conscious of sin and we become convinced of our own guilt. Second half of verse 19. That every mouth may be closed. That every mouth may be closed. This is an interesting expression. It's drawn out of the legal system. And that which is even common to us, that's where the, the accused in the legal system of that day and today has a right to speak in their own defense. Isn't that true? They give the defendant a chance to say something. Why? The reason they do that is to, is to make sure that there are no extenuating circumstances or undisclosed facts that might somehow uh, mitigate the charge that has been lodged against the accused. And so the accused gets a chance to speak in his own defense. That's human court. That's human court. But this is not human court. Paul is not talking about human court here. There is no evidence that will mitigate against the defendant before God. In fact, the picture here is very simple. It's of a defendant who is just standing there and when given the opportunity to speak, what have you got to say for yourself? Hangs his head in shame and utters not a word. He is speechless. That's the position I found myself in after the theft of that tape. There was nothing to say. There was no way to, to take the sharp edge off it. I was a thief. All I could do was hang my head in shame. You'll remember uh, Job, right? Everybody remembers Job from the Old Testament? Poor Job, he went through a very difficult time, didn't he? Towards the end of the book of Job, he is protesting his innocence very loudly. And he says he would like an audience with his Creator so that he might make his case. He might present his defense. God appears to Job in chapter 40 and verses 1 through 4 and the following is recorded for us. Then the Lord said to Job, Will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer it. 
Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. That's the picture of what it will be at the judgment. When the indictment is read, none righteous, none seek for God, all have turned aside, all of useless, none does good, not even one. They're liars, they're violent, they're, they're destructive. No excuses, no defenses. Guilty is charged. Rest of verse 19, every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. You'll become accountable to God, it says. Frequently, sin hurts other people. Isn't that true? And for most of us, that's where we tend to leave it and think about it. We think about the interpersonal damage done by sin. But, but that's not the ultimate source of sin's evil. The ultimate source of sin's evil is because that it is first and foremost an offense against our Creator. And thus it's to Him that satisfaction for sin is ultimately due. That's why the text says here, look at it again, that all the world may become accountable to who? To God. Accountable to God. Since God is an eternal being, sin is an eternal offense against Him and thus requires an eternal punishment. Our sin is an offense to our God. Thus, law of any kind, biblical law given directly by revelation of God or the natural laws of the pagans in the deepest, darkest part of the world makes them and holds them accountable to their Creator because you know what? They don't keep their laws. Doesn't matter what law system they have, they don't keep it. They can have four laws and they wouldn't keep them. Doesn't matter how big and elaborate or how narrow and small, no one Keeps the law. Nobody. Now, as believers, followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, this realization of our guilt and sense of pollution doesn't leave us after we're saved, does it? I'm looking at your faces this morning and I know the answer to my own question. Okay? You all, you still feel your sense of guilt. You feel, still feel a sense of pollution. That you are lawbreakers. Will you admit that to me this morning? Amen. We still recognize that we are sinners who deserve damnation. Is that right? But here's the interesting thing. This is what leaves us. This is huge. What leaves us is the dreadful conviction that God must punish us. That He is obligated to punish us. That is what justification does for us. That's what the acquitting does for us. We know we are still guilty. We know we are still sinners. We know we are still polluted and defiled. Isn't that right? We know we deserve hell. Isn't that true? What has left you, what has left you is the dreadful uh, conviction in your own heart that God must do this. That he, that he must punish me. That He will punish me. That has been taken away as a follower of Christ. That conviction has now been lifted. You have escaped it. You have been acquitted. You have been acquitted. You have been justified. The punishment has already been meted out to another in your place. Is that right? 
Colossians chapter 2, verse 14, it was nailed to the cross of Christ. So as followers of Jesus Christ in this life, we live in that interesting dichotomy and that we know we are guilty and polluted and defiled. We know we deserve hell, but we also know that it's not going to happen to us. We've been justified. Similustus et peccator, Luther says in Latin, at the same time, just and sinner. Paul's closed the door now here in verse 19 and 20. If it was open, even a crack, if there was only a bit of daylight peeking through that someone might say, that's all well and good for all of them, but I don't need Christ. I don't need a Savior. I've got many things that I can rely on, and he has now slammed the door on every bit of it. That's why he says in verse 23, what? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everybody has been swept up. The indictment of humanity is now complete. The entire human race stands condemned. Nobody escapes. Not Jew, not Gentile, not follower of Christ. We're all wrapped up. I could say it this way. If the people of God are shown to be unrighteous, ignorant, rebellious, willful, rancid, immoral, corrupt, deceitful, dangerous, hostile, violent, destructive, restless, and arrogant. That was the last two weeks, right? If, if that's true of us, then there could be no question about the rest of humanity. So let me ask you a question again. Same question I started out with. If you were to stand before God tonight and He says to you, why should I let you into heaven? What would be your answer? What is your answer? Beloved, there's only one correct answer. And that is that I am relying upon the righteousness of Jesus Christ to stand in as my substitute. I have nothing to offer God. No excuses. It is Christ alone. I'm leaning on Him. If you're here this morning and you are not leaning on Christ, Maybe you're not sure, how do I go about doing that? I'm persuaded, David. The sermon was for me. You're talking to me. I know. I know I'm guilty. You don't have to say anything more. I know it. But what do I do? How do I escape? As everyone closes their eyes and bows their head, let me just lead you in a prayer. If by faith you pray this, you believe this to be true, then you will have that substitute. You will have Christ stand in for you. If you've already 
come to Christ by faith, if you've received His substitute for you, then this prayer is nothing but a reaffirmation of that which you already believe. And you can just thank God for it. Let's pray. Creator God, great and sovereign One, I do not deserve heaven. I have sinned against You in thought, word, and deed. I have been a rebel and deserve to be punished forever in hell. Please, please be merciful to me. I believe that Jesus died on that cross for my sin in my place. And that He rose from the dead in order to open for me the gates of heaven. I surrender to You, Jesus, as my Lord and Savior. And now desire to follow You wherever You lead me. Amen. If you prayed that prayer this morning for the first time, I'd like to know that. Following the service, there will be some folks over here by this lighted cross. Why don't you come and and tell them what you've done. Let them open the Scriptures with you. Perhaps there are remaining questions that you would like clarified. They'd be happy to do that. Maybe you have questions on things like baptism, even church membership, baby dedications, anything you've seen and heard today, this morning. We want to answer your questions. God bless you.